propitiation is the mechanics of how you go from outside to inside. And it deals with what causes us being outside in the first place. And that is sin. It is the impact of sin. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Salty Pastor. The first thing you're going to notice is that Jesse, our illustrious host, is not with us today. He's on vacation. He's off resting and recuperating and having a great time. And we are happy that he is doing so. However, that leaves you all alone with me, The Salty Pastor. So we hope that you just have a wonderful time today where the Lord is going to bless your relationship with him by going deeper, not only into the word, but to the principles and concepts that he has revealed to us in the scriptures that make a huge difference in your faith. And that's what this is all about. Our goal as a salty pastor is not to tell you what to think. Our goal isn't to tell you what to eat or what music to listen to, who to vote for, or where you should be living. Our goal is to help you think for yourself and grow your faith to the point where it is rooted on the solid foundation, uh, the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scriptures. And I think that's more important today than ever before, because everybody is trying to use Jesus to tell you what to think and what to do. And in the end, what they say doesn't matter. What matters is your faith. It's what you believe, and it's what you choose to do each and every day in your relationship with him. Now, up to this point, we're in this brand new series called Higher Value, and all of our Bible study has focused on how Jesus Christ instills value in you when you're saved. We cannot make ourselves valuable, but Jesus instills value within us. Now, value is critically important because it is a foundation for your emotional well-being. And so much of our emotional angst a lot of the emotional source of anxiety, the emotional source of depression comes from a misaligned or misinformed foundation of value. Oftentimes uh, in therapy or counseling, what the goal of counseling and therapy is attempting to do is to see that you do have value. The problem is, is apart from Jesus Christ, it's extremely difficult to establish your own value. Your value ends up being placed on what you do or your performance, or it's based on how other people feel about you, which is acceptance. And what we discovered is that these can be used as traps. And these traps can cause all kinds of emotional dissonance or, or emotional immaturity in our lives. But the goal of salvation in Jesus Christ is to set our feet upon a solid rock. It, it is to put a new song in our mouth. It is to bring us from death to life, and it is to be the wellspring that feeds our souls. So it's healing the soul, restoring the soul, and becoming the wellspring of your soul. And the Bible study showed up to this point that the way he increases our values in the doctrine of justification. 
justification is right standing with God. And it's basically the notion there's no thing that you can do. There's no performance or achievement that you can do that will allow you to be justified. Justification is an act of grace on God's part. And that is tremendously freeing when you think about it. It's tremendously healing and renewing because you realize, wow, my value is outside of me. It's not on my performance. So now I live in a world that requires performance every single day, right? I live in this world and it requires me to perform every single day, my relationships and my job, even with myself. If, if I don't get up and I don't perform certain things or accomplish something in the day, I don't like myself. I feel unproductive or I feel lazy or I feel like, oh, that was a wasted day. So what happens is I live in a performance based cause effect reality, which is okay because my value is not based on that. It's based upon the justification of Jesus Christ. And so it allows me to perform, right? And it allows me to have a level of performance higher than you could ever imagine. Uh, this is uh, an illustration. And that is, I don't know if you've ever watched Steph Curry play basketball, but it's so interesting because when he's out there, he plays at this level that is incredible and his performance is unbelievable, but he plays in a way that looks so nonchalant and fluid. Like he's just laughing and just kind of flowing and, and, you know, it's just a really interesting way. He's not like, you know, everything's on the line and he's all tensed up and stressed out. He looks like the most relaxed guy out there. And in a way, that's the way you're intended to live life. You are to enjoy it. And how do you find joy in every experience and every success and every failure and every relationship? How do you do that? Well, the outcome doesn't influence your value. Your performance doesn't influence your sense of value. And that's why that is such an important principle. The second principle is called justification. I'm sorry, reconciliation. If justification puts us in a right standing, so performance doesn't make any difference. Reconciliation means that God accepts me fully. I'm completely accepted and loved by God. So I don't have to seek the approval of anyone else, which radically changes your dating life and your marriage life. When you realize, wow, I need to love my uh, partner, my spouse. If I'm dating uh, this person, I can, I can approach it from the standpoint that my value is not dependent upon their acceptance of me. So I'm not, I'm not looking for and longing for subconsciously driven to get approval or non-approval. And so that's really an important thing to be reconciled to God because it meets that deep seated need. And then that leads us to, uh, the final one. And that is that we're going to talk about, uh, it's not, it's not the total final one. We're going to talk about one next week as well, but today I wanted to bring us to the point of propitiation. Okay. Propitiation is a new Testament biblical concept built upon some of the ceremonial things that the Jews were required to do under the old covenant. And what propitiation does, it deals with the mechanics of how justification and reconciliation occur. Okay. So it, it deals with, well, I was an alien. I was a stranger. I was a foreigner. I was an outcast. I was 
dead. I was an object deserving wrath. And then I was justified. So I was put in a new standing. I was made alive in Christ. I am now a joint heir with him. I've been adopted into the family. So my legal standing with God is righteous. And then reconciliation is I'm not any of those things anymore. I'm a citizen now that's been grafted in. I look to God and say, Abba, Father, for he is not just my father, he's my dad. And so reconciliation is I'm not just uh, in the, a citizen of the kingdom of God, but I'm in relationship with the king himself. I'm best friends with the king. And so that's, that's the justification and reconciliation component. But propitiation is the mechanics of how you go from outside to inside. And it deals with what causes us being outside in the first place. And that is sin. It is the impact of sin. It's really important to understand. Most people don't understand sin at all. What they think is, is sin is an identity statement that, oh, you calling me a sinner, meaning I'm unacceptable to be a part of your church or part of go to heaven or anything. No, what sin is, is when something of great value has a flaw in it. It comes from a word in the Greek that basically, uh, well, it had a Hebrew flavor as well from the old Testament, but the basic notion of it is it was a markmanship. It's a, it's a, like a, an optic type term. What it is, is that when you're shooting, you're shooting at the bullseye. If you miss the bullseye, if it's not perfect, you've fallen short, right? You haven't hit the bullseye and they would say, Oh, you sinned. So they'd use that term in that context. So when it says that it is our sin, it's the flaw or a cancer that our valuable image of God now has that has separated us, right, from God. Even though God has a deep love for me, I'm estranged from him because of sin. And this is the issue of holiness that a lot of people get hung up on. What I want to do is I want to read for you out of Isaiah chapter six, and I, I want to show you why God and, and you and I are separated from him because of sin. Okay. It's a really, really unique perspective. It's an image into heaven through the prophet Isaiah. And this is what happens. He goes, verse one, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So he has a vision of God sitting on a throne. It was lofty. It was exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's a thing flowing off of him, you know, that kind of comes out and it's filling the whole temple. Seraphim, which is a type of angel, all right, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with Two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, what we see here now is something really interesting. Uh, he says that there are angels, and they are saying, Holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory right? And so he's showing what 
Isaiah is seeing and showing to us is that he's seeing God in this throne room with these angels flying above him. Notice also that the angels have six wings. Two are for covering their heads, two are covering their legs and feet, and then two they're flying with. So they only need two for propulsion. So why do they have four other wings? Well, it's in the basis of their statement. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So these angels, which are created beings, and they're not flawed, uh, have to be protected from the holiness of God. Okay? So notice that that is something incredibly powerful, the holiness of God. Its purity is unbelievably absolute perfection. There's no flaw. And so even these created angels have to be protected from it because it is so overwhelming. Now, listen to what happens when Isaiah has this vision, starting with verse four. He says, I saw the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And while the temple was filling with smoke, this, this uh, train of God's glory, his holiness, I said to myself, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for or forgiven or wiped away. Now, so notice Isaiah's response being brought into the presence of God. He is not excited about it at all. He says, woe is me. Now, this is the opposite of so many people in America today. So many uh, uh, people walk around and say, well, I would believe in God if he would just show up, if he would reveal himself, you know, give evidence that he exists. Well, this just goes, in my opinion, to show the overwhelming arrogance in our society that is developed through incredible ignorance. It is the equivalent of saying, well, nuclear power doesn't exist unless I can be in the room and see it happening. Well, if that happened, you'd be killed because of the radiation. It's the exact same principle. And this is fast. You don't need to be a religious person to understand the logic of this. It is that even atheists would say, uh, sophisticated atheists who have intellectual honesty say, if there was a God, this is what God would have to be. Perfect and powerful and holy and all of these types of things. Now, I don't believe that's possible. And I believe the evidence says there is no God. That's what these intelligent an intellectually honest atheist will state. However, in kind of common stuff in our societies, you have all these people who are extremely unsophisticated and they're incredibly ignorant to the point now where there's a lot of people, young millennials and, and uh, Gen Z people who are on TikTok and other social media platforms who are going around saying, this is so cruel to say that God you know, uh, you have to believe in God or you go to hell and then he doesn't give any proof of his existence. 
which of course everything in that statement is false. However, that's what they're saying. And, and that's what's interesting is that if you just take a moment and think about it, is that, well, if there was a God, would I want him to reveal himself? Because if he revealed himself, maybe my attitude would be more like Isaiah's, and that would be the most frightening experience of your entire life. But because Isaiah is not ignorant, his, his, he's wise, and so he's scared to death. And think through the implications of what he's saying. He says, I am ruined, and the Hebrew word for ruined is demah. And the interesting about, about this word is that dama means I am completely and utterly destroyed. I cease to exist, both spiritually and in the material world. Every realm there is, in the heavens above the heavens, in the throne room of God, here on earth, across the board, I cease to exist. I am completely destroyed. So the word dama says so much from Isaiah's perspective. He's saying, there is no way I'm going to survive this. So maybe, just maybe, the reason why God removes himself and separates himself from us is actually an act of love based on our value. Because he values us, we're like China. And so he's not a bull that just goes marching through the China shop, right? stepping and killing everything. He doesn't do that at all. What he's done is he removes himself in order then to allow the process of propitiation to take place through his son so that we can now be back in his presence. So with that in mind, let's read the following scriptures. You know, let's start, let's go over to Romans, okay? And in Romans, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to uh, uh, chapter 3, and we're going to look and study some of the things that we've been studying over the past couple of weeks. And I want you to hear the words again of, of his argument. This is a very important argument about the doctrine of propitiation, beginning with verse 21, where he says in chapter 3, let me flip the page back. He says, but now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, I'm reading out of the New American Standard today because I feel it does a better job of catching the flavor of these highly precise arguments. Okay, the language is much more specific. So notice what he's saying. He's saying Jesus was revealed apart from the law. He says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Well, what's that? It's Jesus right? He says, but it was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. So this is really important. It shows a connection between the New Testament, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the role of the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't the New Testament revelation of Jesus because the righteousness of God, Jesus, was revealed apart from the law. But the Old Testament law, and this is why it's included in our scriptures, is because it points to Jesus, all right, that's exactly what he's saying. Verse 22, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. 
So this is a critical point of the argument, all right? It doesn't matter where you are on the morality scale. You see, the Jews felt, well, we keep the law, so we're extremely moral. We're okay with God. But the Romans, not so much. The Romans were pagans, and by this time, they were, they were pretty wild, you could say. Um, and so they weren't highly moral people compared to Judaism at all. And he's saying it doesn't matter where you are on the morality scale. No one is good enough to be in right standing with God. See, everybody should have the attitude of Isaiah. I'm ruined because I am now in the room with pure radiation and it's going to destroy me. You see, that's the purity of God is, I mean, God is at radiation. I don't want to overstate the case, but just to give you an idea of kind of the concept so that we can grasp the glory of God is so incredibly powerful. So then what does he says? It requires faith to receive Jesus Christ because he's the one who justifies you. That's what I like. He says his grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we receive what Christ has done and are justified. It's not based on our works or how good of a person we are. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now notice what he says in the verse before. He says, we are justified as a gift of grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says, you've been taken through justification and reconciliation. You're not right with God because of Jesus. He then explains the mechanics of how it works. Notice he says, in a demonstration of propitiation. Well, what is that? Well, his blood was shed. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So the, the fact that we can't be in God's presence is purity and is so holy that a massive thing has to take place. You can't fake your way in. And he's saying this is the, the blood and a sacrifice of blood shows this, the, the value of the holiness of God. Okay. And then he turns around. He says, because in God's merciful restraint, he let sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So these are power pack statements. Notice how we are justification through faith. And it occurs because Jesus was publicly, this is the meaning of demonstration, crucified as propitiation. And what, what propitiation is, is the mechanics of how justification comes about. Uh, Jesus, because he died on the cross, was just and justifier, and that's why he can be the propitiation. It's a critical point, okay? And so uh, it, it, what it does is it kind of shows us how this works. And uh, the best way to illustrate it is my wife started a ministry a while back, and it's called Restore. And what happened is uh, her work with uh, human trafficking victims, she found out that it's just a huge mess when, uh, especially women and children, some, sometimes boys, they are taken by uh, a lot of times gangs, and then they are trafficked sexually, you know. And what, they, what happens is, is the cops find out about it. And the only thing that the cops can do to stop it is, you know, they arrest people, they charge them with crimes and so forth. And so these, these young people, sometimes minors, sometimes if they're right at the age of 17, 18, and they turn over, then they get these, uh, 
rap sheets, right? And then they get these charges against them. And then, of course, their pimp kidnaps them, takes them to another state. And then they have all this stuff. Well, what Restore does is it takes women and children that have gotten out of that lifestyle and they've gotten in a program somewhere, they've escaped human trafficking, they're doing much, much better, right? And what my wife found is that, well, now that they've graduated from a program, they have a job, they're trying to live on their own, in another state, they have all of these legal things that charges and because they didn't show up, because they were you know, being held hostage by these gangs and so forth, is that then they have all these fines and all these judgments against them. Well, Restore starts off by writing the judges and says, we'd like to get these judgments off of this person because they were human trafficking and so forth. In, in almost every situation, it's really fascinating, is that what the criminal justice system do, the judges will say, okay, well, I can take these charges of her off or say that they've been fulfilled, but I can't do anything about the fines. I can reduce the fines, but fines have to be paid. So what Restore does is it goes in and it pays the fines. That's propitiation. That's how it works. You see, even though that person has the judgment taken away, they are now justified. And even though the person is healed and is a part of society now, reconciliation, the fines still have to be paid. The mechanics have to be removed. And that's what propitiation does. That's what Jesus does. Um, Look down in Hebrews. I want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. There's some more good stuff in here about uh, propitiation. But Hebrews chapter 2 says this. I'm almost there if you're watching or listening. If you're listening and not watching, uh, I'm, I'm here now. Okay, chapter 2. He says, For clearly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, meaning human beings. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So what is he talking about? Well, the reason Jesus could take on our sins and be the propitiation for our sins is because he was tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted. He wasn't just God incarnate. He was fully human. He got tired. He was hungry. He had to eat. He had to go to the bathroom. He got headaches. He felt anger. He felt frustration. He got aggravated. He felt love and he felt mercy and kindness and compassion. And yet, even in the midst of this wide range of experiences and emotions and feelings, guess what? He never sinned. He never departed from the pure, authentic, righteousness of God. So what the writer is saying is because he walked in our shoes and experienced what we experienced, he's not just a God who is distant. He's a, he's not just a God who can't understand. He is not just a God who is out there with some abstract, cold uh, requirement to be filled. He is a personal God who knows us, who was with us, who was one of us. Therefore, the pain of propitiation is felt to its fullest, illustrated with the most anguished words ever spoken by human lips. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now let's flip over to 1 John, and we're going to read a little bit more here in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing that these I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice John's argument because Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. He can advocate for you and for me with the father. It's just not a legal advocacy, but a relational advocacy as well. Jesus as a part of the Godhead, he's God there together is one. And he has brought us in and is advocating in uh, first John chapter four. Let's flip the page. Uh, verse nine, two pages, excuse me. He says the following by this, the love of God was manifested in us, in you and me, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loves us this way, we also ought to love one another. And this is culminated in the fact of what is propitiation? It's that Jesus, the mechanics is he became sin on your behalf and my behalf. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is the doctrine of propitiation, where Jesus actually took on our sin and paid the price for it. He paid the penalty. So why is this so important uh, when it comes to emotionally healing or being renewed or growing? Well, first, you have to understand the nature of emotional trauma. Our bodies react to trauma. Serotonin levels change, dopamine levels change, blood pressure goes up, your heart rate increases, uh, there's stress, there's hypertension. So whenever there's trauma, you know, and adrenaline, co- I mean, there's all these things happen to you physically, all right? However, it can only happen to you in the immediate. Now, this, I want you to really follow this. It only happens to you in the immediate, right? My response to trauma happens only in the here and now. So how can... I experience a trauma reaction in the present from something that happened in the past. How is it that I can remember or recall something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, yesterday, or 50 years ago, and my blood pressure go up, my serotonin dopamine levels go, my heart rate increases, or I've, I feel, how in the world does that happen? How is in the world does something from so long ago impact my physical manifestation of stress right in the here and now? You know how it happens? Guilt, shame, and regret. When you remember, when you hold on, And when you carry the penalty for your mistake or failure from the past, you create trauma in the present. And that's why we don't grow emotionally. That's why we don't grow spiritually. That's why we don't walk in the renewal, experience the joy of walking in the kingdom of God. You see, our primary defense mechanism in dealing with guilt and shame, the way that keeps it alive all the time in our lives 
instead it stops us from increasing our relationship with God and in being renewed is called the blame game. I mentioned it last week and I'm really want to dig into it right now in our remaining time together. What is the blame game? Well, people who make mistakes, the blame game is this, is that there is a fine that's been levied out there and somebody has to pay it, right? It'd be like, uh, uh, I mean, we live in this world, you know, you think, well, I sit down and go into a restaurant. Oh, there's, you know, there's four of us for our family or five of us. And we're going to go, we're going to sit down and eat dinner. So they go, okay, you can sit over here. And I go and I sit down at the table and the waitress walks up and picks up a bill from the people who were there, uh, uh, before us and says, oh, well, this is the bill from the people, uh, that ate before you, but you have to pay it before you can eat. And you're like, why would I do that? I didn't, I didn't do that. And so that it's kind of like this notion that, well, I have, there's a penalty and it has to be paid. And so what we do is deep down is we believe that people who make mistakes need to pay for their mistakes. And that includes myself. The variation on this is that, well, people who fail are not worthy of being loved or even walking in a good life. Uh, another thing is if my life is miserable, here's another variation of the blame game. If my life is miserable, guess what? It must be somebody's fault, including my own. So what is the answer to this? What is the answer to our penchant for playing the blame game? Because the blame game always results in taking a past situation, right? And creating trauma in the moment right now. And it, our defense mechanism that increases our guilt, increases our shame is the blame game because we say, well, somebody has to pay for that. And more often than not, we pick ourselves. That's right. We condemn ourselves. Well, if I wouldn't have done that, or if that wouldn't happen, then now that doesn't mean there's not cause effect to our decisions. We addressed that earlier on. I'm talking about the blame game where we blame ourselves or we blame others. I want to take just a moment and I want to read a little bit from, uh, McGee's book, the search for significance. He says, if we believe that performance reflects one's value and that failure makes one unacceptable and unworthy of love, then we will usually feel completely justified in condemning those who fail, including ourselves. If possible, we will often try to place the blame on others and fulfill the law of retribution, that people should get what they deserve. For most of our lives, we have been conditioned to make someone pay for failures or shortcomings. Another reason why we seek to blame others is that our success often depends on their contribution. So their failure is a threat to us. And when the failure of another blocks our goal of success, we usually respond by defending ourselves and blaming them. Often we will use condemnation to manipulate them to improve their performance. Blaming others also helps put a safe distance between their failure and ours. But whether our accusations are for, focused on ourselves or all others, we all have a tendency to believe that someone has to take the blame. He then says this, rather than being objective and looking for a solid biblical solution to our problems, we often resort to either accusing someone else or berating our 
selves. Sometimes we blame others to make ourselves feel better. And by blaming someone else who failed, we feel superior. In fact, the higher position of the one who failed, parent, boss, pastor, and so on, and the further they fall, the better we feel. In other situations, however, the opposite is true. When a parent fails, a child will often accept the blame for that failure. So you can see what he's doing is he's describing a very painful past thing and how it affects us in the present. And so the only answer to escape this trap is propitiation. It is a doctrine of propitiation. When we start practicing this in our own lives and we start realizing that Christ paid the price, it transforms your entire past and your immediate present day, which sets a new course for your future. It is so powerful. Listen to what he says in the end. He goes, look, how do we, how do we respond to our own failures or the failures of somebody else? He says, look, if a person who's failed as a Christian, we need to affirm God's truth about them. He or she is deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted by God and complete in Christ. This perspective can eventually change our condemning attitude to one of love and a desire to help. By believing these truths, we will gradually be able to love this person just as God loves us. Forgive him or her just as God has forgiven us and accept him or her just as God has accepted us. It doesn't mean we will be blind uh, to the faults and failures of others. It just means we will continue to see them, but our response to them will change considerably over time from condemnation to compassion. As we depart, depend less on others, uh, other people for our own self-worth, their sins and mistakes become less of a threat to us. And we will desire to help them instead of being compelled to punish them. And that's really it, is that you need to be free of the need to exact punishment on the people around you because of their past mistakes. And most importantly, you need to give up the need to punish yourself. The doctrine of propitiation takes it all away. Whenever you feel guilty, you need to realize that I need to rely on the doctrine of propitiation. How can I be feel guilty about something that Christ has already paid the price for? Whenever you feel ashamed about your past, things that happened to you or things that you did in the past, you can't carry that with you when you affirm the doctrine of propitiation, you have to let it go. Whenever you fail and make a mistake, even if it was five minutes ago, you have to let it go because of the doctrine of propitiation. Whatever it is you've done in the past, wherever you've come from, which you have to realize, you'll never earn enough to pay the penalty because Christ already paid it all. And that leads us with our conclusion. You never you, you do not have the right, my friend, to condemn other people because Jesus is the propitiation for their sins. You can't condemn other believers. You, you can love them, encourage them, speak truth to them, but you can't condemn them. And most importantly, you no longer have the right to condemn yourself. This is why Paul wrote, for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. You cannot condemn yourself anymore because Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. That can't change. So let's put an end to that right now. Now on Thursday, we're going to apply this 
even more. And I hope that you'll be there so that we can dig into this again. This is Salty Pastor signing off for an extra extended version without Jesse. But we will see him on Thursday, I'm sure. God bless you.